All right, let's talk about Salman Rushdie's short story, The Prophet's Hair. Uh, Salman Rushdie is a contemporary author. He is, at least at the time I'm recording this, still alive, uh, and is a very internationally respected uh, author. A lot of people assume that he will someday win the Nobel Prize for Literature. I wouldn't be surprised if he did. One thing that I wanted to do here at the end of the course is to read some works by uh, contemporary writers, writers who are still active, uh, just to remind you that literature is not something that just happened a hundred years ago. Uh, it's something that still goes on, and these works uh, are already, you know, part of the the canon. They're in the Norton Anthology of Literature, and will continue to be uh, going forward. Um, Salman Rushdie is a is a British citizen, but he was born in Bombay, the city now called Mumbai, uh, in India. And uh, he's a, his ethnicity is Kashmiri. Uh, he was raised in a Muslim family. So he has a very kind of rich, diverse background. Uh, and that comes through in his writings. Uh, he's probably most famous because of the uh, there was a fatwa that was issued against him uh, to, that he should be killed because he had written a, a blasphemous, uh, so, uh, allegedly blasphemous book called The Satanic Verses. He actually had to go into hiding and have bodyguards for a while until eventually the, the fatwa was lifted. Um, and you can see there are certainly some themes, uh, religious themes in this work as well. But I want to be thinking in this story about what makes a good story. Uh, that, that um, you know, all of the, the things, the works of literature that we've been talking about are things that I think are, are excellent and that will last and that people enjoy. And so I want to think about this one, particularly in those terms. Um, look at just the opening sentence of the story. Early in the year 19 dash dash now, that is a convention in older literature that uh, they don't give you the exact year. Uh, a lot of fictional narratives do that just to indicate uh, it, this was sometime in the 1900s, maybe early 19, uh, 20th century probably, but doesn't give you a specific year. Uh, and just that little gesture uh, suggests that this is a story. It's not a specific real time that, that, that took place. Early in the year 19... Dash, dash, when uh, Srinagar was under the spell of a winter so fierce it could crack men's bones as if they were glass, a young man, upon whose cold, pinked skin there lay, like a frost, the unmistakable sheen of wealth, was to be seen entering the most wretched and disreputable part of the city, with the houses of wood and corrugated iron seemed perpetually on the verge of losing their balance, and asking in low, grave tones where he might engage the services of a dependably professional burglar. All right, so think about just how much gets packed into that opening sentence and how, you know, just how well written it is. Uh, we, we get a great setup for this story. We get a very vivid evocation of a place, uh, a time. Uh, it's winter. Uh, and it's not just a winter. Winter so fierce it could crack men's bones. Um, that's a wonderful image. Or the image of the, the, the his on this his skin lay like frost, an unmistakable sheen of wealth. Um, 
again, those are, uh, you know, it's interesting, those are images you can't really quite picture, but give you a very uh, vivid impression of something. And uh, the, 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 disreputable neighborhood with wood and corrugated iron. The houses seem perpetually on the verge of losing their balance. It almost personifies the houses. And we find out that he's looking for a dependably professional burglar, uh, which is very odd. Uh, We find out this is Otta. And of course, what happens to him is that uh, he gets taken advantage of. He brought money with him. So he gets, uh, as he says, beaten within an inch of his life. Um, He's carried and, and dumped in the uh, 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 on the shore. The flower vendor finds him uh, barely alive and takes him back to his home. He finds out where he lives, takes him back home uh, on the water. And there we see a, a beautiful but inexplicably bruised young woman and her distraught but equally handsome mother neither of whom, it was clear from their eyes, had slept a wink from worrying. So they see him, uh, see the, you know, the, the state that he's in. Now, think about how the story is being set up. We've got this very shocking, uh, very violent opening, and then this uh, 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 an inexplicably bruised young woman. Uh, well, that automatically sets up a, a, a question in our mind. Well, what happened? How did she become bruised? What What's going on? Um so we go on, we find out that Ada has entered a coma, and his sister, uh, Huma, um, she does, uh, says at the very bottom of page uh, uh, 3002, this was Huma, the sister of the unfortunate young man, and her question was the same as her brother's, and asked in the same low, grave tones, where may I hire a thief? So she goes back and does exactly what he did. Now, again, this is a wonderful, just on a technical level, this is a wonderful way of starting out a story. It starts out with this terrible thing that happens to the young man, then his sister, because he was foolish enough to go out in the you know dangerous part of town asking for a thief, then his sister comes out, does exactly the same thing. Now, all of this is piquing our curiosity. This is a big part of what stories do. They engage you by making you ask questions and and waiting for the answers. You, you, you read more because you want to know what it all means. Why are they asking for a thief? Why is she bruised? And, and just on that level, Rushdie is very good at constructing a story here. Um, but she's learned from her brother's uh, experience. Look on the top of 3003. Uh, she says, I should say that I am carrying no money, nor am I wearing any jewelry items. My father has disowned me and will pay no ransom if I am kidnapped. And my letter, and a letter has been lodged with the deputy commissioner of police, my uncle, to be opened in the event of my not being safe at home by morning. In that letter, he will find full details of my journey here, and he will move heaven and earth to punish my assailants. So she's very cleverly, you know, kind of thought of a way to avoid her brother's fate. Uh, Notice also it says her father has disowned her. Uh, We get another little piece of the the puzzle being added in here. Uh, So eventually she gets to a place, and, uh, you know, one of the things that's great about this story is just the descriptions. Look in the middle of 3003. She was directed into ever darker and less public alleys until finally in a gully as dark as ink. 
an old woman with eyes which stared so piercingly that Homa instantly understood she was blind, motioned her through a doorway from which darkness seemed to be pouring like smoke. Uh, you know, dark as ink is a fairly conventional image, but the darkness seemed to be pouring out of it for like smoke is, is a much more vivid image. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, Rushdie is very good at that, kind of creating these very uh, beautiful images with his language. Um, so she meets this great thief that she's going to talk to, uh, and he, he wants, you know, comprehensive details of the crime to be committed, including a precise inventory of items to be acquired, also a clear statement of the financial inducements being offered with no gratuities excluded, plus, for filing purposes only, a summary of the motives for the application. Uh, now, this this sounds kind of comically bureaucratic. It's like she's got to figure out, f- fill out forms in tripli- triplicate, you know, for filing purposes. Um, and there's the, the tone of this story is very interesting. I think it shifts in several places, but there is a, a kind of a, a humor that runs throughout it, even with these very kind of grim, dark details. It still find, finds a way to be kind of ironic and funny at the same time. For instance, look at the description of the the thief. This is on top of 3004. At this, a paraffin storm lantern was lighted, and Homa saw facing her a gray-haired giant, down whose left cheek ran the most sinister of scars, a cicatrice in the shape of the letter Sin of the Nastalik script. So, again, that kind of vivid visual detail, and also, you know, clearly very symbolic. It's a scar in the shape of a letter called Sin. Uh, Well, obviously, that that seems very sinister. Um, She was gripped by the insupportably nostalgic notion that this boogeyman of her childhood nursery had risen to confront her, because her ayah had always forestalled any incipient act of disobedience by threatening Huma and Alta, You don't watch out, and I'll send uh, that one to steal you away. The Sheikh Sin, the Thief of Thieves. So it turns out this is, a, this is the boogeyman from her childhood. Uh, and now she's going to tell him, because he's the thief who needs to know all the details, and we begin to get the background. So having set up several mysteries for us to wonder about, we will get them answered here. Uh, it turns out the real Huma's story starts six days ago. Her father, uh, a wealthy moneylender, Hashem. Um, they were at breakfast. You know, everything seems to be going the way they describe it at breakfast. Her mother had spooned uh, Kachiri lovingly on the moneylender's plate. The conversation had been filled with those expressions of courtesy and solicitude on which the family prided itself. So this all seems very polite, very civilized. Um, And Hashem was fond of pointing out that while he was not a godly man, he set great store by living honorably in the world. Uh, so it's it's emphasized this isn't a particularly godly or religious person, but he's a he's an honorable one. You know he wants to live honorably in the world, um, and we find out that this is this uh, peace, this uh, uh, idyllic family life isn't going to last long. Top of three thousand five. Breakfast ended. The family members wished one another a fulfilling day. 
Again, they're still very polite. Within a few hours, however, the glassy contentment of that household, of that life of porcelain delicacy and alabaster sensibilities was to be shattered beyond all hope of repair. Again, look at the, the, the just the way he uses language, glassy contentment, glass easily shattered, uh, porcelain delicacy, uh, alabaster sensibilities, all of those kind of images of beautiful, delicate things that can be, uh, and valuable things that can be shattered. And of course, what he finds is he goes to the, 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 the dock, a little quay where his boat is, where he would go to, to into town, and he sees the, the vial that has the single strand of human hair, the prophet's hair. And he knows that this is a relic of the prophet Muhammad because it had been all in the news that somebody had stolen this, but it had not been found. And it says, having found it by a stroke of great good fortune, Hashim's duty as a citizen was clear. The hair must be restored to its shrine and the state to equanimity and peace. So there's a very clear uh, duty that he has. Uh, what he's supposed to do uh, it, it needs to give this back to the shrine. Everything will go back to normal. It says, but the money lender had a different notion. So we see, you know, there are two paths available to him. He, he can do the what he knows he ought to do, uh, but he's not going to do it. And why is that? It says, all around him in his study was the evidence of his collector's mania. And it talks about all of these wonderful exotic objects that he has, that he's a collector. So now notice that his motive for this is not, it's, it's greed of a very specific kind. It's not that he wants to sell this and make money from it. He wants to keep it for himself because he's a collector. He's, he's a hoarder. He likes to have all of these things around him. And he begins to talk himself into this. After all, Hashem told himself, the prophet would have disapproved mightily of this relic worship. He abhorred the idea of being deified. So he said, well, you know, uh, Muhammad was against the idea of relics and uh, being deified. He wouldn't have liked this anyway. Um, so by keeping this hair from its distracted devotees, I perform, do I not, a, f a finer service than I would by returning it. Naturally, I don't want it for its religious value. I'm a man of the world, of this world. I see it purely as a secular object of great rarity and blinding beauty. In short, it's the silver vial I desire more than the hair. Um, well, why not keep the silver vial and give the hair back? Um, but he, notice also, he's, he dis disavows any religious motive. He's He is not a godly man. He's not a religious person. This is just something secular. There's nothing uh, mystical or religious or spiritual about it. Well, well it, it'll turn out that that's not quite the case. And he almost immediately tells his son, the top of 3006, every collector must share his treasures with one other human being. And Hashem summoned and told his only son, Atta, who was deeply perturbed, but having been sworn to secrecy, only spilled the beans when the troubles became too terrible to bear. Now, just that, that's, again, that's one sentence. It's a complicated sentence that uh, Rushdie manages very elegantly. It reads very simply. It's easy to see what it's saying, but it's actually 
there's a lot going on in that sentence. Uh, it's reminding us of Ada, his son, uh, uh, you know, putting saying that he's going to, and even the the, uh, the colloquialism spilled the beans, which seems very different from the the tone of so much of the rest of the story. Um, it gives a little comic uh, uh, twist to that. So after he's told his son, he just sits in his study all day staring at the at the relic. Um, and they, when they come in to get him for dinner, he says, "Now the money lenders." Mundinlinder looked swollen, distended. His eyes bulged even more than they always had. They were red-rimmed, and his knuckles were white. He seemed to be on the point of bursting. And the narrator tells us he had to be helped to the table, and then the explosion did indeed take place. But it's not a literal explosion. Um, it says, Hashem began to gush to spume long streams of awful truths. In horrified silence, his children heard their father turn upon his wife and reveal to her that for many years their marriage had been the worst of his afflictions. An end to politeness, he thundered, an end to hypocrisy. So he's no longer, so this polite uh, family, no more politeness. He's just going to tell it like it is. He doesn't like his wife. He's had a mistress. His, his, he doesn't like his children. Uh, all of these, and notice all of these truths are, are very insulting. And, and, you know, it's not like he tells them some wonderful truth. Um, it, it's all of this, uh, you know, his, his daughter uh, is too promiscuous. His son is too stupid. All of these horrible things. Um, and at the very bottom of the page, from then on, he began to pray five times daily for the first time in his life, and his wife and children were obliged to do likewise. So suddenly, this very strict religious observance happens in him. This man who was always a a man of the world is um, doing this, and we get a a bonfire on the top of three thousand seven, where he burns all of his books except the Koran. Which he puts in the in the hallway and has them and wants his family to read from daily. So we get these this series of these of extraordinary changes in his behavior that are happening, and it kind of climaxes on you know, the bottom of three thousand seven with his daughter, uh, where he wants his his uh, daughter to go veiled as in, in the proper strict uh, Muslim observance. Huma now lost her composure, challenged her father openly, and announced with that same independence of spirit which he had encouraged in her that she would wear no cloth over her face. Apart from anything else, it was bad for the eyes. On hearing this, her father disowned her on the spot and gave her one week in which to pack her bags and go. So there's there's no reasoning of it, and notice it points out this is this is a change. He raised his children to be independent thinking, but now when they don't obey them, he disowns them, and so we get the first attempt to steal or or, re, or return the uh, the stolen hair. Uh, the son has the the key to the safe. He's the is the heir. And so he's uh, uh, removing the little vial from its uh, hiding place. He slipped it in his trouser pocket and relocked the safe door. So he's going to the uh, the mosque to return it. And when he gets there, the relic was no longer in his pocket. It is, it's, it's not there anymore. Then when he gets back, he finds the middle of 3008, 
He found his sister bruised and weeping in the hall. Upstairs in her bedroom, his mother wailed like a brand-new widow. He begged Homa to tell him what had happened, and when she replied that their father, returning from his brutal business trip, had once again noticed a glint of silver between boat and quay, had once again scooped it up, scooped up the errant relic, and was consequently in a rage to end all rages, having beaten the truth out of her. Then Otta buried his face in his hands and sobbed out his opinion, which was that the hare was persecuting them and had come back to finish the job. So this seems uh, almost magical. It's miraculous that the uh, the vial slipped out of his pocket and went right back where their father would see it and reclaim it again. Um, it's almost as if the, the hare wants to be there. Now, Homa it comes up with the idea, she says, the hare, she then declared, was stolen from the mosque, so it can be stolen from this house. But it must be a genuine robbery carried out by a bona fide thief, not by one of us who are under it the hare's thrall, by a thief so desperate that he fears neither capture nor curses. So that's what she's been looking for. She says, well, look, they stole it from the mosque, so clearly this, this can be stolen. We've just got to get somebody to steal it from us. And that's where we, we get back this kind of long flashback in the middle of the, the story, and we're back with her talking to the thief. Uh, and, and she says, my father has taken to sleeping with the precious treasure under his pillow, uh, which will, of course, complicate getting uh, getting it away from him. Now, once Homa leaves, we get some information about the thief. This is on 3009, that he, he has become a sick man, and every day the time drew nearer when some young pretender to his power would stick a dagger in his stomach. A lifelong addiction to gambling had left him almost as poor as he had been when, decades ago, he had started out in this line of work as a mere pickpocket's apprentice. So, he's actually, though he's a great thief, he's also a gambler, so he's lost all of his money, and there are always younger thieves gunning for him. So this is a time to make a big score. He can make all the money here and retire and get out of the game. We also find out about his sons. He has four sons. It says, To his consternation, they had all grown up to be hopelessly devout men, who even spoke of making the pilgrimage to Mecca some day. Absurd, their father would laugh at them. Just tell me how you will go. For, with a parent's absolutist love, he had made sure they were all provided with a lifelong source of income, of high income, by crippling them at birth. So, as they dragged themselves around the city, they earned excellent money in the begging business. So, this father loved his sons so much that he crippled them so that they could beg and make a living that way. Again, there's something so bizarre about the, the, the tone of this story. That, that is both horrifying and funny and a kind of a bizarre, surrealistic detail that, of course, this... Uh, uh, this crazy thief has, has maimed his own children and, and thinks of it as a, a blessing on them. Um, but we get to the, the night of the burglary, and they say it's a burglar's night, clouds in the sky and mists on the winter wind. Uh, so he is going to sneak in and get the the hair. Everything seems to be going fine. Homa lets him into the house. He's going to be able to sneak into the uh, father's room 
And he does so, uh, as at the top of 3010, uh, moving, he moved towards his goal. It was at this point that in the bedroom next door, young Atta sat up, sat bolt upright in his bed, giving his mother a great fright, and without any warning, prompted by goodness knows what pressure of, of the blood clot upon his brain, began screaming at the top of his voice, Thief! 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 It seems probable that his poor mind had been dwelling in those last moments upon his own father. But it is impossible to be certain, because having uttered these three emphatic words, the young man fell back upon his pillow and died. At once his mother set up a screeching and wailing and a keening and a howling in uh, so ear-splittingly intense that they completed the work which Otto's cry had begun, that is, her laments penetrated the walls of her husband's bedroom and brought Hashem wide awake. All right, so here we've got the moment the thief is right there, but he wakes up because as luck or fate would have it, it's at that very moment that the son who's in a coma wakes up for a, a, a moment and yells out, thief. Um, now, the narrator suggests that it, you know he, he may have been thinking about his own father, uh, that it's a blood clot in the brain. But the story also suggests that this is part of the curse that surrounds the uh, the hair. Uh, the, this fantastic coincidence uh, seems to be more than just a coincidence. And you might think that that would be the end of the robbery, but no, it turns out that because it's so dark in the room and is the father is so distraught that he rushed out of the room without so much as noticing the burglar who stood on the opposite side of the bed in the darkness. So he's able to get the prophet's hair quickly. But as the father runs down the hall with his uh, sword in hand, uh, a shadow came rushing towards him through the midnight darkness of the passageway, and in his somnolent anger, the moneylender thrust his sword fatally through its heart. Turning up the light, he found that he had murdered his daughter, and under the dire influence of this accident, he was so overwhelmed by remorse that he turned the sword upon himself, fell upon it, and so extinguished his life. His wife, the sole surviving member of the family, was driven mad by the general carnage and had to be committed to an asylum for the insane by her brother, the, de the city's deputy commissioner of police. So now this kind of comedy of errors has turned tragic. Uh, notice that we've got three deaths and one insanity here in the family. So the, the brother finally died of his coma. Uh, the daughter is killed by the father. The father kills himself, and the mother goes insane. So, And then I think one of the funniest lines in the whole story, after all this has happened, Sheikh Sin had quickly understood that the plan had gone awry. Uh, yeah, it sure had. Um, so he is not going to get his big score. He, you know, he's not going to wait around for the jewel boxes. This is a big, big danger. He has to get out of there quick and get home. Now, in the investigation that follows this, remember the deputy commissioner of the police, who is the, uh, the, uh, the wife's brother and the uncle to the children, uh, he comes in, uh, when he heard of, this is the top of 3011, when he heard of Huma's death, the mournful officer opened and read 
The sealed letter, which his niece had given him, and instantly led a large detachment of armed men into the light-repellent gullies of the most wretched and disreputable part of the city. Now, this is a brilliant, you know, just in story construction terms, this is brilliant. That letter was set up near the beginning of the story, and it was really just kind of a way for Homa to bluff her way into the uh, underworld without getting killed. But now it's come back, and it leads back to the underworld where she was looking for the thief. Of course, they uh, they find him. Uh, Sin, uh, the 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 thief of thieves, tries to escape through the roof, but a bullet from the deputy commissioner's own rifle penetrated his stomach and brought him crashing messily to the ground at the feet of Homa's enraged uncle. From the dead thief's pocket rolled a vial of tinted glass cased in filigree silver. So now they have recovered the prophet's hair and it's taken back to the, uh, the the mosque. But there's a little coda that happens. They say you can see it uh, even today. Um, but before our story can uh, properly be concluded, it is necessary to record that when the four sons of the dead sheikh awoke in the morning of his death, having unwittingly spent a few minutes under the same roof as that famous hair, they found that a miracle had occurred. They were all sound of limb and strong of wind, as whole as they might have been if their father had not thought to smash their legs in the first hours of their lives. They were, all four of them, very properly furious, because the miracle had reduced their earning power by 75%, at the most conservative estimate. So they were ruined men. <laughs> now they're... The the uh, and it says this is under the the miraculous influence of the hair, the four sons are lamed, but that's actually not a good thing. It it means that they can't make money anymore. You know, uh, a guy uh, who's lame is going to make a lot more money begging on the streets than a guy who can, who's you know sound body. Uh, so they're they're ruined. You know, they're by they're, they're by seventy five percent at a conservative estimate. Only the sheikh's widow who had some reason for feeling grateful, because although her husband was dead, she had regained her sight. So it was possible for her to spend her last days gazing once more upon the beauties of the Valley of Kashmir. All right. Uh, it's a very ironic and very strange ending to a very ironic and very strange story. Um, what... You know, I, I think this is a, a delightful story, um, but I'm not sure what it means. The story is beautifully written. Uh, it's got a, a, a very tightly constructed plot. It's got intriguing characters. It's got all of the things that you like a story for. And it seems like it's pointing at some kind of deeper thematic idea Obviously, the the fact the the, uh, the relic could have been anything, but the fact that it's the Prophet Muhammad's hair, and that the father goes into these very you know extreme religious observances afterwards, it seems to be pointing at some kind of of critique of of uh, of religion of fundamentalism, and yet at the same time, it seems more like just a a fable or a fairy tale. Uh, there's a kind of a uh, there's not the kind of a strict thematic logic. Uh, think of it this way: if the if the hare wanted to get back to 
where it belonged, why didn't it let the sun take it back? Well, there's some rule that it has to be stolen, it can't be given. But again, that seems like something out of a fairy tale. Um, and the the healing power that it has. Notice how differently the hair acts on the thief's family than it did for the uh, the moneylender's family. Um, it, it, it's two very different kinds of effects. What what I'm suggesting is that when you start kind of tearing it apart and trying to figure out well what could the point be, it seems to make contradictory points. Uh, it's got, it lives in this kind of of magical fairy tale world, and it touches on serious issues, issues about not just religion, but uh, family relationships and dynamics. Uh, and all of that is there, but not in a in a kind of a simple, straightforward, consistent way. And I think that in itself makes the story very intriguing. It doesn't have a simple moral or message or lesson. And I think that's one of the things that is is we value very highly in stories. Stories that have simple morals or messages or lessons, you, you read them, you get the message, you get the lesson, and you're done with the story. Stories like this that seem to be hinting at a, a deeper message but don't really have, but you know, you can't really quite pin down what it is, that's very intriguing. That kind of, you know, that's an itch that you have to keep scratching. You have to kind of keep going back to that story and figuring out what's going on. Um, and, and that's a quality, I think, that this story has. Uh, Rushdie is one of the, uh, is a, a postmodern writer. Uh, we've read the modernists like uh, Virginia Woolf and, and T.S. Eliot and James Joyce, uh, postmodernism comes after that, and it's much more playful kind of literature. And you can see there is a great deal of playfulness in this. Uh, it doesn't take itself quite so seriously as the modernist literature did. Uh, it, it's also another uh, uh, genre that you could say that this belongs in is magical realism. This is a, uh, a, a kind of a fantasy that happens in a real world, but where fantastic, miraculous events happen, but they're just part of the, the fabric of reality. They're almost not treated as fabulous and mystical. They're just, that's just how it happens. Um, there are a lot of uh, Latin American writers who write in, uh, like Gabriel Garcia Marquez, who write uh, magical realism. And uh, Salman Rushdie writes in that vein as well, but that also is kind of playful. It, it, it's bringing in fairy tale and magical conventions uh, along with a, it, you know, you couldn't tell this story in a strictly realistic way. But I find it, uh, you know, just a very satisfying, very entertaining story uh, that is, you know, just in, in purely technical terms. It's well made. It's well put together. Uh, the, the the plot uh, everything is set up for the, the plot kind of unfolds like a uh, almost like a Twilight Zone episode at the end um, with, with that uh, surprise ending. Um, it's a, a it's a beautiful work of fiction, but I'm not sure what, if anything, it all adds up to. Now, one disadvantage of uh, teaching this class through recorded lectures is I don't get to have feedback from you. Uh, if this were a class I were teaching in a, uh, a 
face-to-face classroom, I would would actually probably have started out by asking, what do you think this all means? What is it about? And uh, probably get a lot of very different, very interesting answers. And I think that is the quality that is so interesting to me about Salman Rushdie. Uh, He's provocative in that way. Uh, I mean, I have some things I think it's about. I have some observations I could make, but I know uh, lots of people would have different ones. It's it's uh, uh, it, it's almost almost like one of those Rorschach blots where you, you know kind of see a, the pattern that you see in it tells you more about you than it does about the the, the ink blot. Uh, so I think that's the kind of thing that he's doing. And again, that's very different from the much more calculated, much more serious kind of heavy uh, symbolism and social commentary that you got in modernist literature. Uh, it, it, it's more playful. It's more flexible. Uh, and it's, it's more uh, open to the reader in a certain way. Uh, so, well, I hope you... Uh, you enjoyed uh, Salman Rushdie's The Prophet's Hair. I know I'd have. Uh, now, next time, I want you to read the first act of Tom Stoppard's play, Arcadia. Uh, Tom Stoppard is another contemporary author. Uh, he, he's written a number of, of very famous plays, including Rosencrantz and Guildenstern Are Dead, uh, which is the story of Hamlet told from the point of view of two minor characters in the play, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Uh, he also wrote the uh, screenplay for the movie Shakespeare in Love. Uh, he's written quite a number of, of, of plays. Uh, this is maybe his his masterpiece, though. And I want you to, as you're reading it, one thing is, as you're reading the play, make sure that you read all of the stage directions. It's very important to kind of get the the pictures and the images of what this would look like on stage. This was designed to be a play. You couldn't make this as a movie, as I think you'll you'll see. And you'll see that it takes place in two different time periods. It takes place in the early 19th century and in the 1980s, uh, when it was, you know, or 1990s, when it was written. So the scenes will alternate back and forth between those two. And I want you to think about what the relationship between the two strands of the plot are. Now, in some ways, it's very clear because the people in the in the contemporary scenes are historians who are investigating what happened in the earlier period. Uh, so in that way, you'll see a lot of things that uh, uh, Stoppard is able to set up. But notice also just uh, other kinds of parallels between the action of the past and the action in the play's present. Another thing I'd like you to pay attention to is misunderstandings. There are a lot of times, just sometimes within the dialogue, where characters misunderstand each other. And look at when that happens, look at how often it happens, look at how it's used. Uh, It's sometimes used for great comic effect, but I think it has a deeper thematic resonance in the play. So let me again thank you for your attention, and we will discuss the first act of Tom Stoppard's Arcadia next time.